Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When I'm on the bike, I don't feel like I've got a gender. It's, it's not part of it at all. You know, it's, it's, it's my legs and my lungs and my bike and I can't see anything because, you know, it's me looking out at the world. I see the road. The road doesn't have a gender. Um, and then the moment you stop, everyone's like, oh, you're a woman. And I'm like, oh, yeah, OK, thank you. Thank you for reminding me. I've momentarily forgotten. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and this conversation with Emily Chapel. Emily, in her own words, likes bikes a lot. She began her two-wheel journey as a cycle courier in London before cycling across Asia and Iceland from Anchorage to Seattle and was the fastest woman home in the 2016 transcontinental race. On top of all of this, Emily is also an academic with a master's in gender studies, which incidentally is where this particular conversation took us. It wasn't until towards the end of the podcast that Emily mentioned she's done dozens of podcasts before, and usually she tells similar stories about the cycling that she's done. But we naturally drifted onto the subject of gender here. The conversation was especially relevant as, at the time of recording, physical and violent attacks on women and sexism in the UK are resulting in big conversations online and are extremely topical and poignant. And it sort of got personal in a good way. Emily's experiences, her intellect and her studying led us down a path where really I was just there to listen, absorb and learn. She put me right on multiple occasions and provoked ways of thinking that I hadn't necessarily considered before. But the way she did that was respectful, considerate and kind. From a personal perspective, it's one of the more poignant adventure podcast conversations I've ever had. And whilst it might be something a little different to usual, I'm extremely proud to be able to release this conversation online. I hope that whoever you are and whatever your experience is, that this conversation resonates with you in some way, and that if you end up discussing or debating this in the future, that you do so with the same calm, cool and respectful nature that Emily displays. Okay, over to Emily Chapel. So I guess a logical place to start would be um, if you could just kind of introduce yourself. It gets weirder the more I ask this and realise how strange a question it is, but who are you and what do you do? Hi, well, my name is Emily Chappell um, and the short summary is I ride bikes quite a lot. Um, so I've done a lot of long distance stuff. I've done um, 
lots of long tours. I cycled across Asia once. I cycled across Iceland and North America in winter, which was quite cold. Um, I've raced a few times. I won the transcontinental race uh, in 2016. And um, way back before all of that, I was a bike messenger, which I think is what kind of got me going on all of the stupid long distance going on forever stuff. So how do you, I mean, it'd be good to talk about childhood, I guess. Like, how do you go from, you know, being a young child to becoming a bike messenger? Well, I don't have a good answer for this because uh, I think you read a lot of, you know, the books that cyclists write and all of that. And they all start off with some sort of touching story about learning to cycle or being really into it as a kid. Or, you know, you look back and you see the signs. And I didn't really have any of that. Like, I often joke that if all the people I was in school with could see me now they would just be like what her like I am the last person you would have expected to turn into what I've turned into I wasn't an athletic child I wasn't into sport I was a bookworm I was really nerdy I you know I had moments I used to like being outdoors a lot I used to run around in the hills on my own I grew up in Wales and things like that and I did ride a bike a bit but not much you know I had periods where I was into it and periods where I didn't I didn't learn till I was about seven so I, there's no obvious connection. I can now look back and remember things about cycling as a kid and think, ah, yes, but it wasn't a preordained thing. Um, I was briefly very into it when I was about 14. I did a bike tour with my dad in France. And for, for that summer, I was really into cycling. But then I came home and I had bad knees and I got granular fever and I became a teenager and it just was off the table completely for... Um, for really about 10 years. And then it was when I moved to London as uh, a recent gra- graduate. Um, and for some reason, I mean, I was terrified by London. And I was terrified by the thought that people would try and ride bikes in this horrible city. But I also wanted to have a go. So I got a bike. And that was actually 15 years ago this month. Um, the rest is history. So I commuted, got really into commuting, got kind of irritatingly into commuting if you ask my colleagues I was that annoying person coming in saying oh my god I feel so great I feel so alive and fit and wonderful I love bikes everyone should do this I really I'd like to apologize to them all now um and then obviously from there I became a bike messenger and it just you know it spiraled you get more and more and more into it how do you go from being a not particularly adventurous bookworm to I mean what did you study and why did you move to London oh uh, no again like not good answers I studied literature um and loved it still love literature I mean I've written two books I read books all the time that's a pr- pretty much a constant and I moved to London because I didn't know what else to do I just finished a degree I had no clue I had no sense of what I was going to be able to do or what career lay ahead of me so I just moved to London and started temping and applying for jobs in things like journalism and copywriting and PR and everything that people told me I could do with a degree in literature which none of it seemed like the thing I wanted to do with my life but I just didn't have a clue and like my ambition when I was younger was to be a writer and write books but you know everybody wants to be something outlandish when they're younger Um, I also wanted to climb Mount Everest and who knows what else you know no one thinks their childhood dream is going to come true because in most cases it doesn't um and yeah I was completely lost for um, uh, almost a year when I first moved to London it was just 
I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know why I was there. I wasn't happy. I was probably the most unhappy I'd been in my life. And bikes were sort of what took me out of it, which I think might be partly why I got so into them, because I needed some sort of life raft. And when the life raft came along, you know, my saviour arrived in the form of a cheap yellow road bike that I got on Gumtree. Um, I just clung to it and was like, you are my saviour. I will stick with you forever. You have taken me out of this. And I think it was partly that, you know, I needed a big thing in my life to give it meaning and direction. If it hadn't been bikes, something else might have come along. I don't really know what it would have been, but it happened to be bikes. So that sort of became my thing. And then the the wonderful, um, I don't know if you would call it irony or, or what, um, bikes were what led me to my dream of being a writer. And I really didn't see that coming. So I ended up doing another degree um, in an even more obscure branch of literature. And this was sort of, you know, possibly not a very valid career path and failed to get funding for a PhD. And that's when I became a bike messenger because it was 2008, a recession was hitting, there were no other jobs. And I remember thinking, right, okay, well, this is kind of me putting my brain to bed now. Like, you know, farewell to the life of the mind. Now I'm a manual labourer. And I'm sure that will give me a lot. This is a just, you know, complete change of direction. And it was almost as though I swerved from the path and it took me to where I wanted to be via a completely different and much better route. As soon as I was riding my bike around every day, after the first few months where I stopped being knackered, um, I suddenly had loads to say. I started a blog. I was writing all the time. I was writing really well. Um, I just had the urge to do it where I hadn't before. And it was just, it was kind of hilarious at the time. I was like, I've been trying to do this for so long and not getting anywhere. And as soon as I gave up <laughs> and started something else, it all came flooding out. Um, and now look at me. But it's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, you know, you say these aren't good answers. I think they're great answers because they're very human and they're very real. And yeah, okay, you know, you didn't have parents who were explorers, etc. But Oh, God, surely the question, though, is did it all happen by accident or were you consciously or subconsciously finding something to write about or creating a life that was worth writing about? Well, it wasn't only about writing, because I think I think some people must assume that, you know, I'm a writer. And so I go out and do something interesting for the purpose of writing about it. And then I find something else interesting for the purpose of writing about that. That's not really how it happens. I just kind of do what I want to do and it kind of works itself out. Um, I think you're right. Subconsciously, it was all there. Um, so when I, after three years as a courier, I decided I was going to try and cycle around the world. That didn't feel like a new thing. That felt like something that had been in my head for a very long time, possibly for my entire life, that I'd finally kind of unveiled. And I think what... Um, I don't know what was going on there. I mean, basically, I'm, I'm just living out all my childhood dreams, which is great. Um, I think the sad thing is that I've, I had these childhood dreams. You know, whenever I heard about, for example, someone cycling around the world or someone writing books or all of that kind of stuff, um, there was this sense of, I wish I could do that. I wish I was that sort of person. I want to do that. This is interesting. You know, we, we find a lot of stuff interesting that we hear and that we see, but there are certain things that we find interesting in a way that's like, that's interesting in a way because I want to do it. And then 
on top of that, there came all of this, the terrible social conditioning, the sort of, oh, no, but I can't because I'm not very clever, because I'm not very strong, because I'm not very good at things, because I'm not very capable, because women can't do these things, because that was a huge hurdle. It's not the only one, but all of the people I saw, you know, doing things, like writing, well, not writing books so much, but, you know, cycling around the world, climbing Everest and all of that, they were all men. Um, so I was still inspired, and a lot of them are still my heroes and role models, but there's this sort of extra hurdle, because they're even further away from you, because they're not just, you know, superhuman and strong and different but they're also you know you've been brought up to be a woman and you've been told certain things about what you can and can't do and and also you know I was I could have been more sporty as a kid but I was really brainy and nerdy and I love books and so you get kind of squashed into a niche and there were occasions where I did go and do sport and I wasn't bad at it but the other kids who were into sport kind of didn't want me there because like this was their thing and I was a weirdo um, and there's all these little things in life that just sort of nudge you in certain directions, which means you've got a lot further to f- sort of fight your way out of that if you want to go and do whatever it is that you secretly have set your heart on. So what I think happened was that I had always wanted to cycle around the world or do something of that calibre. Um, and I was just very, very lucky that life kind of played out in a way that a few of the hurdles got removed. And I could, for a start, just see the ambition and be like, oh, yeah, I actually want to do that thing. And then once I'd acknowledged that, sort of realised, OK, maybe I actually could. And I think it was mainly couriering that did that because that was couriering was the first kind of really you know, mad, bad, dangerous, adventurous thing I did. I was a very good girl before that. And I learned so much about how to be in the world because like you're you're on your own on the bike in the traffic you've got this job to take an object it's like being on a secret mission it's like here's your package take it from here to here very fast and you do you do it all yourself like you manage it all yourself you find the route you plan the route you think about oh no I'm not going to go that way I've got another package to pick up I know the traffic's bad there all sorts of things you know it's it's an incredibly demanding, difficult, challenging, brilliant job. And you also have to deal with, you know, there is a lot of aggro, there's danger, there's traffic. You learn how to handle it. I learned how to shout at people. I'd never shouted at people before. You learn how to not take people's shit. And I'm still not great at that, but I'm way better than I was. And, you know, terrible things happen. You get punctures in the rain. One day I had five punctures. Um, and it always happens when you've got like six jobs on board and it's the end of the day and one of them's running late and you just have to deal with it. You can't give up. You can't call someone in to fix it or take it away. It's awful and you're exhausted and saddle sore and tired and miserable and want to give up and go home. But it's your job. So you have to do it. So you find a way of sorting it out. You fix the punctures or the broken crank or whatever it happens to be. And you you deal with it. And you have to get up every day and do it again. And that was that was a big thing that I sort of I think has taken me into the rest of the stuff I've done. Like you are knackered all the time. You're exhausted. You're kind of grinding yourself down as a career. Thursday mornings. Oh, my goodness. It's the hardest thing in the world. But it's your job. You just do it. You have to do it. And that I think it's sort of it's less of an option to just think, oh, no, no, I don't really want to do this. I can't do it. So you you know, you build toughness. And 
I think very sadly, a lot of women are just not given the opportunity to do that. They're told straight away, oh, no, that would be quite hard. You don't want to do that. And actually, why the hell not throw people in at the deep end and they will build toughness. And then look where it takes you. I'm getting a bit ranty now because what happened was I sort of like I had an opening in my mind and my ambition and cycling around the world sort of walked into it. And instead of thinking, oh, I'd love to do that, but, you know, um, I wish. I thought I'd love to do that. It sounds terrifying. I mean, you know, I need to be able to do this and this and this and be tough and fix bikes. And then I thought, well, I can actually do most of that stuff. I mean, that's all my career skills. So there's a woman called Anne Musto who has inspired me a lot. She was, um, she's passed away now, but she was a headmistress in a posh girls' school in London. She'd never really ridden a bike or been athletic. And when she retired, she decided to cycle around the world. So her students bought her a bike as her retirement present. um, And off she went. And I think it was the blurb on the back of one of her books. uh, And I can almost quote it word for word. It said, um, you don't have to be in your 20s and male and an ace mechanic to cycle around the world. I've cycled around the world twice now and I'm old, I'm unfit. I don't know how to fix a puncture. I can't tell a chain ring from a sprocket. And that sort of became a call to arms because I read that and thought, oh, wow, I'm way better than Aunt Musto. I can do all of those things. And I'm in my 20s. The only box I don't tick is male. And if she can do it and be so awesome, I don't think I have any excuse. So that's my my sort of long-winded way of, of saying it was this combination of things. Careering had given me the capability and confidence and it had taken away enough of the sort of hurdles for me to even just look at cycling around the world and think oh yeah actually I recognize that as something I want to do and I have the ability and then there was this horrifying realization of oh my god now I have to do it but that's it's just amazing to go from you know oh what am I going to do in London to cycle Korea to cycling around the world I mean do you this is not a loaded question, um, but do you feel as though it was 100% just for you making the decision to go? Or do you feel as though you had something to prove to the world or for the world? Oh, um, that's actually a good question. I think I want to say no. I think that came a bit later. Um, yeah, because I started off. Like the year before I left, once I'd realised I was going to do it, I set a date for departure as far into the future as I could get away with, without it being so far into the future that I wouldn't do it. So, And I, then I spent that year just stressing out about everything because I felt so naive and stupid. Um, and I did. I was naive and stupid a lot of the time. I have loads of really happy memories of meeting experts and asking them questions that betrayed just how clueless I was and embarrassing myself. Um but then once I was on the road, I very quickly realised that, that it was way easier than I thought. Because actually, like, bike touring is super easy. You just ride your bike, which you can do. You stop and eat, pretty easy. You find somewhere to camp and you sleep, very easy. And you just keep doing that. It's great. And all the problems that come up are things like punctures, which are not actually that hard to fix. You know, It's actually just like living life in a slightly different format. Um, so I realised it was perfectly comfortably within my abilities um 
And yeah, and I started to look for ways of making it harder, like, you know, doing massive distances and going over mountains and going through very challenging climates and things like that. And then I think I, it was when I started to meet people who treated me differently um, because I was female, it just made me all the more determined to, you know, my fragile ego to really overdo it and prove that not only was I perfectly capable, I was way stronger than them. Because as you go, like the certain routes that people take across Europe and Asia when they're bike touring, especially in Turkey, because everybody kind of gets funneled through Istanbul. I met quite a few other bike tourers. They were all they were all men, uh, one or two couples. Um, I didn't meet my first female bike tourer for oh, like another five years or more. And they they were all really nice. But I think there was this sort of assumption that they knew that their stuff and I probably didn't and there would be this dynamic where you know they, they'd compliment me and say oh you're a pretty good cyclist and I'd think dude I was a bike messenger for three years I'm probably a better cyclist than you are I wouldn't say this of course um or they'd you know they'd explain things to me one guy was fixing a puncture and he kind of helpfully talked me through it as he was doing it in case I didn't know um and this is just, you know, this hasn't stopped. This still happens all the time in various forms. Um, but then there would be this thing where, you know, we'd ride together for a bit or they'd hear about some of the stuff I'd done and they'd sort of realise that I was actually quite strong and, you know, maybe quite good at this. And then they'd go from thinking I was this sort of um, plucky novice who probably didn't have a clue but good for her to thinking, oh, my God, this woman is a hero. She's a titan. She's so tough. And it was really bizarre. It was like they couldn't let me just be one of the people who was doing what they were doing and we were all doing it and it was fine. It was either like, oh, bless her, you know, she's she's really brave and she's a girl and she's doing this on her own. And or it was, yeah, or I was this kind of behemoth of a woman who ate bicycle tires for breakfast, as one guy put it. It was, yeah, it was funny. That strayed from the point of it, but... Um, yeah, there was a bit of wanting to prove things. And then I think it was it was actually about a year into the trip because uh, I had a lot of like, you know, internet activity going on and I was making friends and I was writing a blog. And it was, well, it was exactly uh, 2012, probably August. I was in Hong Kong waiting for a visa and I met up with a chap called Rob Lilwall who had done a very big bike trip a few years ago and I'd been put in touch with him. We had lunch and he and his wife were just kind of, delighted to meet me because he said you have now answered my question people are always coming up to me and saying yes but you know could a woman do what you do and he had literally never heard of a woman doing this kind of stuff and and I thought well I'm I'm not actually that special so um like you need to know that many women can do this stuff and presumably everybody else does too so I started this little thing on my my website where I rounded up a few women I was in touch with who were bike touring in various ways in various places and invited other women to submit questions you know one of those no stupid questions things so we got all sorts of like you know big questions and small questions and clever questions and stupid questions and it turned it got much bigger than I expected like loads and loads of people were involved and loads of people had a lot to to say about it and that I think was a bit of a moment where I realized like it amazed me that we still didn't realise that this was just a normal thing that women could do normally and, you know, it's fine. 
But clearly, people needed to be told. So I think the last 10 years now, I've kind of spent telling people again and again. But does it frustrate you that it comes back to gender? Does it frustrate you that you you can't just be a person, you have to be a woman who did it? Or do you find it useful and empowering? And uh, Both. It sort of goes around in circles. I mean, yeah, a lot of the time it really does because... When I'm on the bike, I don't feel like I've got a gender. It's it's not part of it at all. You know, it's 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 my legs and my lungs and my bike, and I can't see anything because you know it's me looking out at the world. I see the road. The road doesn't have a gender. Um, and then the moment you stop, everyone's like, "Oh, you're a woman." And I'm like, "Oh, yeah, okay, thank you, thank you for reminding me. I've momentarily forgotten." Um, and you know, I've been I've been invited to to speak at events. There was one in particular shortly after I got back from that trip, and it was a great event. There were loads of people speaking there. They'd all done fascinating things, and they were. I was one of only two women, and everyone else was sort of talking about the adventures they'd had, and I was talking about being a woman. It's like you know that's your specialist subject, and it's like can we just perhaps you know give up on talking about our gender for a little while because I've got some really cool stories that don't actually involve gender at all. But then on the other hand, there are a lot of, um, I mean, disclosure, I have a degree in gender studies, so I am a bit fascinated by this stuff. And um, it is really interesting in other ways. Um, So when I was on that big um, trip across Asia, um, you have, in many ways, a very different experience traveling if you have a different gender or like loads of other things, if you are from a different racial background or many, many other things. So an example, I've got a couple of examples. When I was in Turkey, um, at one point I met up with a couple of uh, Dutch guys who were following the same route I was. And we kind of compared notes on the last few days. And every single night I had planned to camp somewhere, but I'd had a touching encounter and been invited to stay in someone's house in a village and spent a lovely, cosy evening with a family and made friends and been fed a lot. And every single night along the same route, they had camped in the snow. And one night they had actually been moved on because uh, people didn't want them there. And everybody was like, oh, you know, you're so vulnerable as a woman. And I thought, nope. No, actually being a woman is way better because everybody wants to protect you. You do a lot better in some ways. And also, once I got into Iran, um, it was very much the same, if not more so, in terms of hospitality. Like Iran is one of the best places to travel because everybody is just so friendly. Um, But my experience was quite different from some of the men, well, all of the men I met, because they were all whining about how I've not spoken to a woman for a month. And, you know, women are so oppressed here. I never get to see one. And this was not my experience at all, because as soon as I was invited into people's houses, I was hanging out with the women and children and watching Desperate Housewives and talking about our lives and gossiping and making plans and, you know, just having a friendship as you would with anyone else. Um, and because society, society there is segregated in that particular way, the male travelers were just not having that experience. So any, any sort of difference that you have as you travel changes your experience in many positive and many negative ways. You know, there are, there are negative things. Um, but it's really, I, gosh, I mean, I have no regrets. I wouldn't change anything. I'm really happy that I've traveled, you know, as a woman, as I am, um, 
it's it's been great. It's not only a negative thing. I just wish people would stop explaining things to me. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I think that's, I mean, there's a, there's an almost an irony to this because we're doing it now, aren't we? You know, if I was having a conversation with a man who'd cycled around the world, we wouldn't be talking about this, probably. I think maybe in 2021, there's a chance we might. You really should. Yeah. No, I mean, you're speaking, you, you know, it, it it speaks directly to my experiences because I've traveled a lot in the Middle East and I never see women. You know, traveling in Wadi Rum and Jordan, places like that, you know, they're in the tents and I'm not supposed to see them and that's the way it is. So it's different. But no, I think you're right. You know, maybe we shouldn't get bogged down in this, but I think there's, there's a fear these days that, you know, and I'm, I'm increasingly less scared of it, especially with people like yourself. Like, let's just talk about it. You know, I'm fascinated by it all. I'm, I'm amazed that your experience is that different. And that's naive, you know, of me to think, well, really, it's that different. Like, of, co- of course, people mansplain, but. There are loads of differences. I mean, there are also all of the, the safety issues, which you know, the traditional thing where people say, oh, you know, aren't you very vulnerable as a woman? And I try to play that down because partly I'm just really bored of having the conversation. But also, I don't want to say anything that's going to stop other people doing it because I've had a couple of bad experiences along the way, nothing terrible. I had way worse experiences in London as a cycle courier and commuting on public transport. So, I mean, my argument is always you are statistically safer cycling across Asia than you would be hanging out in a resort in Mallorca or going to work in London. Or, for example, you know, most sexual assaults happen between partners. So, you know, when a woman gets married, you should probably sit her down and say, are you sure you want to do this? It's a very dangerous thing statistically. Do you feel vulnerable? So, you know, that's that's my facetious argument about that. Um, But yeah. All of the stuff that has been in the news lately, um, I've been thinking about it a lot because it's something that mostly men don't have to think about when they travel. And I am always thinking about um, I'm always thinking about it here as well. It's not really that different. And there are differences in the way it happens, but it's just a very big, constant part of the experience. And I'm quite interested to know. I think a lot of men might not even know. But what are the things that men are constantly thinking about? What are the parts of men's experience that I don't know about? And I think a lot, I mean, I don't know. I'm not a man. I think you might, as a man who travels, not even be completely aware of it because you just think this is the way things are. This is the normal, neutral experience. But it will be interesting as this conversation evolves to see what, I don't know, what differences there are. I think they will be profound. I think there will be natural crossover, but how can there not be? I mean, I was robbed by a lady, I, you know, 
she was wearing a short dress. We were in a bar in Kenya and she was local and she came over and sat on my lap and she stole my wallet and my phone. And I was 19, 20 before I knew what to do. And, you know, that was ex- that experience was probably exclusively going to happen to me because I was a man. But I, you know, I don't feel unsafe in these parts of the world, but, you know, in the, in a kind of sexual assault capacity at all. You know, my safety concerns are centered around people either depends where we are in the world, but robbery is probably about as scary as it ever really gets. And that's genderless. You know, I would probably argue. Um, I'm not completely sure about that, actually, because I I know a lot of people, all the people who were doing the sort of across Asia thing the same time I was. Anecdotally, most of the male cycle tourers I know have been robbed or mugged or held at knife point or gunpoint. And most of the women haven't. Uh, this is just the people I know in my experience, but very dangerous for you men. Are you sure you're, you should be doing this sort of thing? <laughs> well, isn't that worth considering? I, I uh, This is fascinating, but um, I spoke to a lady who I'm not going to name, but she's a sort of semi-famous rock climber a while ago. And we were talking about gender in the mountains. And um, I asked her why there aren't more women doing first ascents of Himalayan peaks. Um, and she said, but given how dangerous it is and given the death rates, why do men feel the need to do it? That's a much more interesting question. And it kind of shook my world a little bit. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I. It's the language we use, isn't it? You know, and stop Asian hate and the argument around, well, hang on, shouldn't we be calling this stop white terrorism? Um, that's the point. We talk about women, but when are we going to talk about men? And you know, I don't know, maybe now's the time. <laughs> this is a very good point. I love her argument. I'm probably going to uh, sort of re-re-quote that at some point or or just steal the idea. I I think a lot about, uh, <laughs> for some reason, about high altitude mountaineering. It's one of, I don't know, it's something I've always been interested in. And I think in some ways, a lot of the themes of high altitude mountaineering are kind of, if you take what I do to its logical extreme, which I would never do, um, but I can sort of look at that and I can see, yeah, this is this is how it plays out. Um, you know, th- these are the people who take risks. These are the people who don't. This is what happens. These are the cruelties and ironies of it. Um, it's, uh, yeah. And I think also I've noticed, because I, you know, I'm part of cycling literature now, mountaineering literature is a lot further ahead than cycling literature. So I sort of look at it and think, oh, okay, that's helpful. Good influence bad influence in many cases but it's and again i'm just continuing down the gender train here but it added that i mean that's a male dominated world you know we're still obviously there are women who who climb high altitude peaks but when you think when you look at the boardman tasker you know prize every year for mountaineering literature i mean that's a white bloke list oh the last two years they were women but but yes yeah in general were they yeah, yeah. So this year, last year, it was Jessica J. Lee, and the year before that, it was Kate Harris. Yeah, well, that's good. I think that, oh, but then it gets even more complicated, which is how many, you know, what's the ratio of men and women writing books, and then the merit of that, et cetera, et cetera. I was on the shortlist for the Boardman Tasker last year and had a really interesting conversation with the chap who came to, to film me for the sort of, you know, the section that we did. Um, 
very much along these lines you know we were talking about um we were talking about who writes books and who gets books published and how the bias is there you know for as far back as do women do these things and then when they do them do they write about them and do they write in a format that will be published and will publishers be willing to publish them and do we get to read them and so do we get this influence on all of our sort of personal narratives and it's a very complex thing and he I mean I I've thought about this and thought, you know, how would we balance this out? And I thought, you know, we should, if you wanted to do, say, a festival of women's adventure literature, it would have to be not just books. It would have to be also blogs and zines and social media and all of the other ways. And he said, yeah, there are, you know, there have been things of women's letters because, you know, in back in the the last few centuries, um, a lot of women travelled, but they were less likely to have books published about it. But they wrote loads and loads and loads of letters and so you have to take that format into consideration but these things are often less accessible to us as readers and i mean i'm really going to try and steer away from this soon but you've got a you know is it a degree or a phd in gender studies and i'm fascinated but um a a master's a master's okay cool well i haven't so i'm feeling very outmatched here but it's interesting I mean, do you think that we should look to compensate? So, you know, we don't need fairness. We don't need 50-50 split. Um, I think, of course, of course. I mean, for one thing, isn't it incredibly boring to just publish the same book again and again and again by a man called John who went to the hill? I mean, even just finding some different people with different backgrounds, we're going to get some different stories. Is that not way more interesting? Um, I am really amazed. Like, I, I know of a, a person recently who, you know, is an athlete who's done extraordinary things and basically ticks a lot of the diversity boxes. And I am astounded that this person's book has been turned down by publishers, if only because, like, surely at the moment you want all of the diversity boxes to be ticked but in addition the story is just incredible and they're probably just going to carry on publishing books by men called John who went up hills and it's really it's made me quite cross um but also it's just it's way it's way more interesting one analogy I've used before is um like I do I do love the the books by white men about Everest um I've read so many of them. I really like them. I can quote shameful numbers of them to you. But it's like going to a five-star hotel buffet and just having the chips. Like, you know, they're really good chips. I'm very fond of chips. But would you really walk past everything else and just go for the chips? Would you not want to try a bit of everything and possibly overdo it a bit? So, yeah, I think I think we should. And I don't know who we have to, you know, arm twist but uh but i'm i'm willing to go and twist their arm but isn't it all about appetite i don't know i'm you know do tell me if you disagree i'm making this up but i am a bearded heavily tattooed bald white bloke who really likes going on adventures and the stories that resonate most with me are usually white blokes with beards going on adventures now is that because that's what they all are or did I, or, or because that's what I am, or did I become that because that's what's resonated with me for 15 years? I don't know that I know the answer. I don't know the answer either because those books really resonate with me as well. And I, I, t- I take a couple of those boxes. Like I'm, I'm mostly bald. Um, 
I've, uh, for people listening to this podcast, I have recently shaved my head. Um, but I'm not a bloke. I don't have any tattoos. Um, but I do realize that, you know, I grew up reading, you know, reading everything that I read and all the adventure and travel stuff I read. By and large, it was, you know, it was, it was white blokes. And it troubles me a bit that I think I identify a lot with white blokes. And I think my personal sort of, you know, the way I see myself, the way I have done the stuff I've done has been influenced by something that is not even me, but I didn't have any alternative sort of influence. And now, for example, so reading books about men dying on Everest, it's kind of like, you know, when you go on holiday and you want to read just a thriller or a romance, something quite formulaic, you know where you are with it. That's when I <laughs> I pick up books about men dying on Everest. Um, it's like, you know, that's my, that's my formulaic comfort read. I'm not sure what that says about me. But it does sort of worry me that um, partly that I'm so fascinated by men dying on Everest, but partly that that is what I find comfortable to read. And yeah, sometimes I read, you know, books by women doing interesting things and it's a bit more hard work. And I think that's just because I've grown up with this sort of, you know, I've got used to the sort of literature that is, to use my degree, hegemonic. Um, and I am willing to make the effort to kind of go outside of that and try and get comfortable with other things because ultimately that's not going to be just good for me and good for everyone else, but it's going to expand my mind. I'm going to find more things that I'm interested in. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here talking to you now and I'm in my room and I'm looking, I can see all my piles of books all over the place. And, uh, and it is, it is a real mix and it's got to the stage now where, um, there are a lot of places in literature where I feel comfortable. But there's also, you know, there are books, for example, I'm looking at Girl, Woman, Other by Bernadine Evaristo. When I read that um, about a year ago, it was like meeting myself. There were parts of me that I met in that book that I'd never seen before in literature and parts of my experience that no one had ever put words to. And you know, I don't know if you as a, a white bearded man will ever get that kind of shock of, oh my goodness, this is me, here I am, because you've always had it. Well, oh, that's interesting. I mean, this isn't about me, but I, w I, I would argue that actually I'm desperately seeking an identity and a sense of purpose that I don't really have. And I think that's what, you know, the outdoors, adventure, it can do that for us. We can look at these people. And I think that's, you know, to make it about gender or about race, that's where I'm privileged because I can look at, oh, do I like that XSAS guy who has gone on to do that? Or am I interested in the really thinky, you know, the writer who's gone and cycled this length of wherever? Or, oh, there's the ex-prison officer who now says that nothing will ever be as bad as prison. So mountaineering's easy. I can just, and I was really self-consciously <laughs> just a moment ago, looking around the room thinking, oh, come on, it can't all just be white blokes on those bookshelves. <laughs> but I'm ashamed to say that it mostly is. And that's, you know, I, I'll admit that, that's an accident. It's the path of least resistance, I think. I don't know. Like, it's not any of us getting anything wrong. It's just, unless you really think about it, um, that's where you end up. So one of one of my hobbies, um, 
is every uh, maybe two or three times a year, somebody will publish a list on a blog or in a newspaper or something of the top cycling books. And usually it will be a list of about 10 white men and Dervla Murphy. That's pretty much the format. Sometimes they miss out Dervla Murphy. So my hobby is, <laughs> is going on Twitter and saying, oi! And it's actually getting quite boring. Um, and then, you know, then we start a Twitter thread and everybody talks about their favourite women who ride bikes. But the people who've written the lists will often respond and they will usually say, oh, God, yeah, I'm sorry, that just didn't occur to me. Um, and I think the problem, which is not an easy problem to put your finger on or solve, is how do we stop that from happening? Because I can, I'm sure I've done that myself in the past. You know, think of a list of, you know, your top books or top whatever. And unless you make an effort and you remember to do it, you might just end up with a list of white men because just they're there, you know, they're right there. Um, and that's why I think, you know, all of us who are doing diversity work, whatever it is, is that even means, you kind of just have to keep banging and banging and banging on at it. Like, you know, my my hobby of arguing with men-only lists is kind of small and funny and a bit tiresome for everyone. But I think I just have to keep having the conversation until everybody's head is, is reprogrammed a bit. Yeah. And, you know, you say funny, and we're talking about this in a slightly jovial, you know, we're both laughing and smiling, but is it like, do you, does it not get you down when you're responding to those people online? Does it not like really upset you? Is it affecting mental health? This, this particular thing doesn't. Uh, this is actually just something I kind of, I, I kind of roll my eyes and I'm like, not again, but it's fine. But it's, I mean, one of, one of the things is I do a heck of a lot of extra work just pointing stuff out and thinking well someone has to have this conversation I guess it should be me I've got the energy I've got the like the standing and the status some people will listen to me because they think I have done some cool things so I've got a bit more respect so I suppose I should wade in and spend 20 minutes of my life talking to this person on the internet and it's just you know it happens in big and small ways sometimes it really is like you know sometimes I think right today's job is to have this argument on Twitter and it takes the whole day because it's a big thing. And sometimes it's just, I'm just going to respond and point this out. Um, and that, uh, it's, I don't know if it affects mental health. It's kind of, it's another one of those things. It's just a constant presence. And it's harder to opt out of. You know, you could opt into it. You probably do sometimes. But you can choose not to notice it at all. And it doesn't have to be your problem. It kind of is my problem whether I do anything about it or not. And then sort of further down that line, the stuff that does affect your mental health a bit more, which thankfully, touch wood, has not touched me too much, is the horrible kind of violent, toxic hostility that a lot of women get online. Um, and I've had just a few incidences where people have been a bit nasty to me. And it really, it's surprisingly upsetting. It's really, when you see it from the outside, you don't realise how upsetting it is. And one of the sort of further upshots of that which I realized a few years ago is um seeing that sort of stuff happen stops women from even going there you know the now I think is probably in almost all women's heads online uh, anyway this kind of subconscious it's not worth 
making that comment or saying how I feel or suggesting this opinion or starting this conversation because I'm going to get utterly slammed. And I realised this a few years ago um, when I was still a courier because you get a heck of a lot of road rage as a courier. And I, it was always, you know, it was like this constant attrition on your well-being. But it was also bizarre because, you know, I had people, so many people all the time in vehicles shouting the most obscene things at me and shouting so angrily and so violently and occasionally like driving cars into me and things. And you think, that's not normal. That's not how people behave. But in this particular sort of circumstance, clearly, you know, there was some reason why they felt they could. Um, and that really, you know, that constantly affected me. And that started to, it was basically the reason I stopped couriering and moved out of London, um, ultimately, because I just got fed up with having to deal with it and it not ever going away. And I thought, well, I could just carry on and be miserable or I could go and ride my bike somewhere else. So I did. Um and at that point, I made the connection with online and thought, yeah, it affects how you, you know, how you go about yourself in the world. Um, you know, we're probably missing out on so much cool stuff because women and possibly everyone, I don't know, are just reluctant to say what it is they're thinking or what this idea they've had or, you know, or to say, I'm not sure how I feel here, but let's try out this argument because they just know they're going to get the full force of angry men on the internet and they just can't be asked or they're frightened or whatever. Does this feel brave? Does having this conversation feel brave to you right now? <laughs> uh, no, because I think we're friends, but I think it, I've not said, I've not said all of this out loud before. Um, and I also, to myself and to everyone else, I think I project like, I'm fine. I'm cool. I'm not affected by this stuff. You know, I'm strong and capable. I'm on top of things. Um, and I think I find it hard to admit to myself as much as anyone else that it all of it affects me. I just kind of try and, you know, you try to be optimistic and get on with things. I don't want to whine. I don't want to be a victim. So, yes, you know, I live in constant fear of sexual assault. And yes, I, you know, get very affected if people make terrible comments on the internet about me and all the rest of it. But I've just kind of chosen to try and keep my distance from that. And that is maybe not brave. I think maybe the people who talk about it and stand up for themselves and put themselves in that incredibly vulnerable position of being truthful about all of this are much, much braver. I think in some ways I'm dodging the issue. Uh, I hate to break it to you, but thousands of people are going to listen to this. <laughs> Probably shouldn't point that out. But I I think it's brave. I mean, I feel brave having this conversation because I don't need to. That's something I think about so much. I posted something on, on Instagram. I shared something a while ago and it was a little bit, um, what's the word? Um, I can't think of it. it. I just didn't think it through. I just shared something that resonated with me. I wrote some sloppy words and I got eaten alive. And, you know, I don't have a big social media following, but I probably got 30 angry messages and I stayed up until 2 a.m. answering some of them and apologizing to others. And I just thought, what, how have you got here? Like, why did you bother? This isn't your fight. You know, don't worry about it. Just stop. And it's like this conversation, you know, and I think... I'm not going to speak on behalf of men because <laughs> I really don't want to. 
but I don't need to have this conversation with you. It's I'm not I don't walk around on the streets worrying about my safety. I you know I don't have a different experience cycling around the world, but that's the point, right? We need to. And I think so many men are terrified of even, you know, the word gender makes them run for the hills. And I think that's that's the online world. You know, it's scary, but we do need to talk more about it. We do need to accept that there are differences. It hit me hard recently. Well, I think what you're saying about what you're saying about you don't need to have this conversation. I mean, we can turn that around and say, actually, no, you do. I've had this conversation a lot. You do need to have this conversation and you need to go to all your men friends and uh, sit in your bars with your beers or whatever it is you do and, and have this conversation again and again. Because believe me, all of the women are having this conversation all the time between themselves and we're fed up with having this conversation. It's such a waste of time. Think of what else we could be doing. Can you not take this for a while and we will go and ride our bikes and climb our mountains and have fun and you can carry this for a bit. Yeah. I mean, how do I argue with that? You know, that's the point, right? <laughs> Don't. Off you go. End of podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Even if I were to try to, well, what's our gender split? We do know. I think it's something like 60-40 or 70-30 male. So there you go. This is a, it's a good start, right? <laughs> Great. Well, we've solved gender. What else did you want to talk about? Yeah, yeah. Well, we may as well fix, you know, we could fix America. We could sort out, you know, Russia annexing <laughs> Crimea. It's going to be fine. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I'm actually really conscious. I'm conscious of the fact that we're supposed to talk about all of the wonderful, exciting things you've done, but people can listen to that in other places, right? And they can read some books. Um does this feel like it's your thing, like it's your purpose, like your reason to get out and fight every day? Oh, that's another interesting question, because we've gone back to the sort of, is it about gender or is it not? Because some, most podcasts I do, actually, yeah, they're all about the amazing things I've done, which is great. I don't want to talk about gender all the time. This is one of the times where I guess I really did want to talk about gender and we've really gone for it. So, yeah, the answer is both. And we've just proved that. Um, is it my purpose? Um, that is that is a really interesting question because I think a lot about what my motivations are and why why I do the things I do in the way that I do them. Um, I've always had a little voice in my head telling me I I need to be useful. Um, I'm not sure exactly how I'd put it into words, that I need to be contributing um, and helping people however that comes out. So when I was doing my master's in gender studies, for example, I loved it. I was having a great time. I loved studying. I loved being in academia. I was flourishing. But I remember all the way through, very consciously, just thinking, I cannot justify this. I cannot justify my career in academia. I mean, I'm still going for it. I'm still trying to become a, an academic. But what good am I doing? I mean, I'm just going to end up teaching some undergrads about, you know, Judith Butler. And it's not, I don't know. And every time I say this, I think, yeah, but you know, loads of academics do a really good job and I love them. But I felt like I needed to be doing something more or less or different or something. Um, and interestingly, when I was a cycle career, that voice went away, um, maybe just because I was knackered all the time. Um, but I felt a bit more directly useful then. And then 
yeah, when when I got into bike touring and then very quickly got into constantly ranting about women's equality all the time. Um, I didn't have to do that. You know, a lot of people go bike touring, a lot of women go bike touring and don't then stand on a soapbox for the next 10 years. So, yeah, I have some sort of sense of, of maybe I just need something to fight with. I don't know. Like I, I'm reluctant to go all Mother Teresa and say, I just need to feel I'm helping people because I don't even know if I am. Like it might just be ego based. I might just need to feel that I'm helping people and justify what I'm doing in some in some way, because I am also having loads of fun. I'm just doing what I want. Um, so maybe it is just, you know, finding a way of um, pacifying my my ego. Um, but yeah, I, I need to feel I'm useful. And I'm actually, I'm sort of wondering, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm edging out of the cycling world gradually, because I kind of feel like my work here is done. Like if I carry on doing what I'm doing, there's loads of other people doing it now, which is great and very exciting and very inspiring. And they're more relevant than me and they're doing it right now and they're learning different things and communicating different things and using things like TikTok, which apparently is a thing. Um, <laughs> I'm, you know, <laughs> I was a blogger. Remember blogs? So, yeah, I, I need to have some sort of ongoing current purpose, but I also just need to have an ongoing challenge. I'm, I'm happiest when I'm on a fairly steep learning curve. You know, I'm happiest when I, when I'm in the thick of the fight and it it probably isn't altruism it's probably just personal you know I need to keep busy well this uh, it gets deep even deeper quickly and philosophical but it's all ego I mean even altruism is egotistical right we have to want to do it it has to make us feel good or we won't do it that's the root cause of happiness and I think you know you've nailed lots of what I think about and the reason that I do this podcast and you know I think we're increasingly a purposeless especially in the west we're purposeless you know we have no great struggle and if we can find our struggle if we can find our reason then generally we're happier busier more connected people and yeah it sounds like you're doing a good job of you know rallying people and well people around the cause well, I hope so. I mean, I always, I always have a lot of second guessing to do about this kind of stuff, but um, it seems to have, it seems to have worked so far. I think one of the things that I think I would like to remind you or insist that, um, you know, when I've been trying to encourage other people to go and, you know, cycle around the world or do the transcontinental or something, What's at the root of that is not thinking that everybody should go out and, you know, follow their dreams of adventure and all of that. Not everyone can or should or wants to. Um, it's about wanting to pass on this sense of capability and competence and confidence that I found. Um, so yeah, I found it in careering initially. That was what really changed my life. And then um, the first time I attempted the transcontinental, I didn't even finish, but I came home and I remember just feeling bomb proof. I was just invincible for a few weeks. It's a great feeling. You look at all the normal problems in life and you think, oh, come on, it's fine, it's fine. Um, like stress just wasn't hitting me for a while, which was quite nice. And that's when I started thinking, I really wish I could somehow like put this in a bottle and pass just pass it out to people because imagine where we would get if everybody could feel like that. It's not about the bike. It's about, you know, people 
would start removing all the hurdles that are in their way and thinking, you know what, I really do want to become a scientist and cure cancer or, you know, an environmental scientist, save global warming or go into politics or any of the many, many, many things that people can do to improve the world. Like it starts with just feeling like you're able to do it. And that I think, you know, cycling is just the means to that end, really. Because cycling is not very important. It's just a hobby. And traveling is just a hobby. It's what you then go and do afterwards that that really counts. Well, isn't that it? I think that, you know, I would argue cycling is very important for that exact reason. Well, so, so would I really, but <laughs> I'm biased. So just as I draw to a close, um, you said you think you, you feel as though you're moving out of the cycling world. I uh, because because you feel like you've sort of not done it but what is it that you are going to do well I'm I'm always going to be cycling because I'm just hopelessly addicted to it and I love it so much and I'm so grateful to have something in my life that makes me so happy um so I will always be cycling probably as much as ever but I've got a bit of time and energy now, so I'm I'm think I'm thinking about a, a career change and getting a, a proper job. Um, I'm studying science at the moment, which I have not done since I was about sixteen. So um, again, thank you for the thank you to cycling for the the confidence and capability that has enabled me to do that. And yeah, we will we will see where I end up, but I've got I don't know. I've probably got another 50 years, so I'm going to try and fill it well. Well, that's a lovely way to, yeah, to look at it. Um, okay, I have two last questions for you. Um, one is what scares you? Tax returns. <laughs> that's the shortest, simplest, probably most, well. <laughs> if you get a proper job, you won't have to do one ever again. I know that's a big part of the motivation. <laughs> oh, come on. Amazing. Um, what gives you hope? Oh, that's such a lovely question. I could answer it in so many ways. Um, well, I don't want to just say cycling, though cycling is what gives me hope. Um, it's, I can't answer this question. All I can think of to say is hopeless cliches. At the moment, what's giving me hope is spring and just the weather warming up and the evenings lightening and the year kind of taking hold. Um, riding through the night into the sunrise and seeing the day get light around me gives me hope. Um, and, and other people. I think. Um, so I've been really lucky over the last uh, well, 15 years now to be part of an industry and a community cycling that is growing amazingly. Like all the people I used to mess about with when I was a courier, they now all like, you know, they run cycling businesses, they're journalists, they're bike builders. It's really, it's an amazing thing to be part of. And I didn't used to have any riding buddies who wanted to do stupid long distances like I do. Now I never have to ride alone unless I want to. I have so many friends who want to do the things I want to do. And watching so many people get into cycling and then 
do whatever it is they do with it and do all these things that I could never possibly do. And seeing all of that happening and knowing that there's so much more to come, that really, really, really gives me hope. So there you go. Two questions, one very short answer, one very long one. That's excellent. Ace, well, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. That was unexpected and took lots of twists and turns that I enjoyed. (laughs) So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. It was a pleasure. Thanks for the chat. Thanks for listening. The podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft and produced and distributed by Pip Saunders and Alex Hall. It's edited by Kate Bullivant. You can keep in touch at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk and you can stay up to date on Instagram at theadventurepodcast.